too. And I just realised I haven't put my microphone on. The following day both told me of those they'd lost in World War II and told me they knew how I felt. I thanked them and meant it and spent some time dwelling on the fact that bereavement was a universal experience, like Donovan's universal soldier and its orders came from far away no more. Images of savage cabbage arose from time to time, but vivid memory was fading fast. I kept thinking about the possibility of getting the tapes from Ron's parents. I asked my mother what she thought, and she said that it was probably a little too soon. Maybe at the end of the summer. So I waited. Jack Hackman had vanished sold his drums and gone to work at Midland Bank. I dropped him a line. It wasn't answered. What did I expect? I don't think Jack ever considered me a friend. I was Jack's friend because of Ron, Steve and Savage Cabbage. Jack's parents considered me public enemy number one just as Lindy Dale's parents had done. There was no point in calling. I was probably relieved, to be frank. I never did warm to Jack's scatological, homophobic, racist humour. He wasn't actually rabidly homophobic or racist, but his sense of humour tended toward these topics. He meant no great harm by it. He was merely unconsidered. He had no interest in philosophy or examining his ethical structures. I decided he wasn't to be blamed too much for that, as his parents were deeply ignorant people. My father may have been a working class Tory, but he was no racist. My father must have provided me with some moral, ethical sense. Jack's parents, on the other hand, were greedy, upwardly mobile and fairly moronic. Not a flattering picture, but that is how they were. They, in turn, must have had origins which failed to provide them with religious virtues. Could I spend a pleasant evening with Jack? Probably not. He'd probably got back together with synthetic Cynthia, his calamitous carasposa. Synthetic Cynthia was the name Ron and Steve coined for Jack's girlfriend. She was a connoisseur of Benny Hill, Harry Worth and Norman Wisdom. I smiled grimly at the memory of Steve's description of her. She's not exactly stupid, but she's extremely dull. She doesn't comprehend Monty Python. She finds it irritating. 
I think Jack would make a better looking girl. She looks like a water buffalo, laughs like a hyena and prattles like a parrot. Without the lads to back him up, Jack would have submitted to his parents' will and Cynthia would have him on her romantic rotisserie before long, with a toffee apple in his mouth. She'd crocheted him a hideous woolly bobble hat the Christmas before last that caused Steve and Ron to laugh till the tears ran down their faces. Ron had asked him, So, Jack, is that part of the anti-sex league uniform or something? And then they both howled with laughter again. Jack probably had a whole range of those hats by now. My 18th birthday came and went. I got a card from Mrs Bruce and was touched that she'd remembered. The thing she'd forgotten, however, was that she and her late husband had told Steve they would give me his uncle's Gibson EBO and basement amplifier for my 18th birthday. It was to have been the cheaper Vox, but they decided to be even more generous. I wasn't supposed to know, but Steve had told me. Again, I felt torn. How could I grieve the death of my friend and the loss of the EBO and baseman at the same time? Especially as now I couldn't do much with the equipment. I still had my amplifier, microphone and stand to show that I'd once stood on stage, but there was no EBO to remind me of my musical ambitions. There was no EB3 either. I'd been on the cusp of buying Ron's EB3, the one I'd used with Savage Cabbage, but that bass and accompanying Marshall JTM45 amplifier were now sitting silent in the music room in the Bourne. I remembered that music room well because I'd spent many hours there either talking with Ron listening to Ron play or having Ron give me lessons on his EB3. There was a Steinway in the music room and sometimes Ron would play some boogie, J.S. Bach or weird and wonderful mixtures of the two. And now my two friends had gone and their blues was the blue of the sky. They were both dead and so was I, the only difference being the fact that I was ambulant. That being the case, why not take the free school coach trip? I could do that on autopilot and maybe I'd be able to forget Lindy, Steve, Ron and Savage Cabbage for a while. The only reason I remember that wretched school trip is because a girl, whose name I cannot remember, decided to put the make on me in a manner that was both abrupt and entirely unlikely. It was thought, for some unaccountable reason, 
that I was about to buy Greg Ford's beach buggy. This made me, suddenly, an alarmingly attractive romantic prospect to the young lady in question. It was fine weather for adventures with a beach buggy, and I'd certainly not have objected to having such a vehicle if I'd had a great deal more money to spare. As it was, I was more than content with my motorcycle. The young lady, awash with the prospective thrills of Greg Ford's beach buggy, swung her way up the aisle of the coach and loomed across the top of the seat at me. Vic, she grinned vivaciously and decidedly flirtatiously, drawing out my name into a long, loquacious drawl. Your hair's grown really long. Then she plonked herself down in the seat next to me and proceeded to conduct herself in a manner that left little to the imagination. A hot tongue in the ear tends to leave one in little doubt as to the nature of a situation. Torridity erupted out of nowhere, like a hot sand viper out of a Schwarzwälder Kirschtorte. I was still mourning Lindy, not to mention Ron and Steve, and although I knew I had to move on at some point, I'd not yet developed any enthusiasm for dalliance, however delightful. Still, there she was, and there I was. I didn't consider the situation in elaborate detail. It must have occurred to me that this represented a time to change, or simply an opportunity to see what might happen next. She wasn't exactly the kind of lady I'd seek out, but she seemed to want to make an effort to find Sunhouse and National Resophonic guitars interesting. I remember you singing that wild blues song in Morning Assembly in the first year sixth. I thought half the teachers were going to die or something. What was that? I always meant to ask you, but we were never in the same classes. That was John the Revelator by Sunhouse. Sunhouse? Sounds like a conservatory. Is that a person's real name? Yeah, it's his real name, or rather, Eddie James House. But he was son, you know, like Sonny Boy, like Sonny Boy Williamson. I gave too much detail, but she stayed with me. I asked her what music she liked and she named a few bands. I'm mainly into Pink Floyd, uh, King Crimson, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath and, oh yeah, Led Zeppelin too. Cream? I asked. Yeah, them too, but they've split now and there's a lot of new stuff now that's really exciting. I wasn't sure how to respond to that cream weren't exactly archaic. I liked some numbers by the bands she mentioned, but they weren't blues bands. 
Led Zeppelin had started out as a fine experimental blues band, but they drifted into progressive rock. I liked some of the progressive rock well enough, but it wasn't blues. And somehow I couldn't get quite as excited about anything that wasn't blues, unless it was J.S. Bach. Bach, she uttered in amazement, as if I'd said Engelbert Humperdinck. How can you like blues and Bach? I don't know how exactly, I replied, being deliberately literalist in my answer. Maybe it just happens. No, I mean, they're so different. Did you ever hear Savage Cabbage play? Yeah, brilliant. So sad about Ron and Steve. Heard you three or four times at least up at the Queen's Oak. Well, if you liked how we sounded, Steve and Ron were always incorporating fragments of Bach into their improvisations. Really? Really, I smiled. It would have been hard to tell, of course, but Ron always used to say that if you played any of Bach's piano pieces on baritone and soprano sax, you'd have avant-garde jazz. You like jazz? she asked again with some degree of incredulity. Certainly, but mainly avant-garde jazz. Led Zeppelin used to play blues avant-garde jazz fusion material, but that was way back when they weren't the big deal they are now. Didn't know that. There was much she didn't know, but that was hardly a matter for blame. The more we talked, the more I knew she wasn't remotely like Lindy Dale. With Lindy, I would have been able to mention the pieces of Bach in question and to have talked about anything in riotous detail. But with Miss Anonymous, I could only skim the surface of any subject. She didn't have that much to say about music, but we managed to keep ourselves occupied especially when she slid a hand inside my shirt. That was a novel experience after five minutes association, but who was I to object? Then she took my hand and insinuated it into her brassiere. All right, I wasn't going to object to that either. Celibacy had never suited me in any case, but I still felt vaguely emotionally anaesthetised. It was as if someone had thrown on the do all the things you're supposed to do switch and I was doing all the things I was supposed to be doing, but without any sense of pleasure. I was some sort of amorous robot programmed to do what was expected. Maybe I'd just died with Ron and Steve, but my body was somehow just carrying on, as if it was alive, with a minute version of me inside it. The robot had to watch everything when it really just wanted to be switched off and put back in the shed where the sensual robots were kept. <laughs>